copy of Scripture, you can be turning to the Old Testament book of Joel. Minor prophets, only three chapters long. It's pretty small. Skip by it if you're not careful. Finally made it. End up reading all chapter one through chapter two, verse eleven. Eventually, but just want to do sort of an introduction today. Joel is a very interesting book, especially within the order of the minor prophets, especially as far as dating is concerned. In fact, probably no other book in Scripture has a wider range of suggested dates than the book of Joel. Um. I don't know if you're very, anybody real familiar with Joel? Anybody spent a lot of time studying it? Because I've read through it a lot, but this is the first time I've really studied through it. Now, these kind of things like dates and so forth, uh, they can bog you down. But for those who are interested, um, you can find writers and commentaries who will place Joel as far back as Jonah in the very beginning of the monarchy, all the way up to the very end of uh, the post-exilic Israel after even Zechariah. So everywhere in there. And it's one of the things that's kind of held me back as I've been studying this. It's trying to figure all this out. Where it stands, where it should be. The reasons for some of this, in case you're wondering, is if you read through it, you'll find out that Joel... Never mentions a king, for example, or a royal house. So a lot of people, um, well, one, that is obvious why we can't figure out where he goes because he doesn't mention anything that's going on around him. But people use that to say, well, then there were no kings. And obvious this was a certain time when he came along. But it really doesn't necessarily mean that. But um, also, there are priests and elders who are the authorities in the city. Therefore, a lot of people say, well, see, it had to be before the exile because there were priests and elders in charge, or at least it would have to be way after the exile when these things came back into being. So you'll see as we move forward, uh, also, there seems to be a great day of judgment coming, suggesting either the Assyrian invasion that we've talked a lot about or the Babylonian captivity, which we've also talked about. Yet Joel describes Jerusalem as having walls. And you know that doesn't really happen fully till after Nehemiah. So there's just this plethora of um, material that causes people to really not know where to place him um, in the order of history. There's a mention of a temple's existence, which again would either suggest prior to Babylon or way later after. So if this sort of thing interests you, I encourage you to find some commentaries and read up. And if you come to a conclusion where it should fit, let me know. I'll go back and fix my notes so next time I preach to Joel, I'll know the answer. But you'll be the first one in church history to figure it out. They're all over the place where he's supposed to go. I've sort of chosen to fit him in here. I told Jonathan, I just wasn't sure we could do it later. I'm not sure any of you would really mind either way. But most of the people I read behind tend to believe that it's kind of close to in order where it's been put into the canon. So possibly he's a contemporary of Amos, 
right in there, except he speaks to Jerusalem and Judah. And so we just put him in here mainly because we didn't know where to put him. And uh, we're going to treat him as not post-exilic. But um, I agree with most of the people I do read behind. This has little bearing on the writing or the tenor of the book. In other words, what Joel has to say to us and what God has to say through Joel, it doesn't really matter where he fits in history. Because what he says, of course, being the word of God is timeless. And so I would rather spend a little more time trying to exegete these, the actual text and less time guessing where he fits in history. Not only that, but also Joel has a very prophetic, future-looking nature. As you'll see when we go through this, um, even apocalyptic, very visionary. So he's looking forward, which makes it very applicable to us today. And I think that also is a good reason not to be too worried about where he fits in history and in what time period he was preaching because it's timeless. Now, if you're not familiar with Joel, you're probably at least familiar with chapter 2 of Joel because in Acts chapter 2, Peter in his Pentecost sermon says that the very pouring out of the Spirit of the Lord and everything that's going on at the birth of the church there in Pentecost, Peter literally says, this is what the prophet Joel uttered. In other words, Joel is coming to pass. The prophecy of Joel is happening before your eyes. So, we'll move on to that. The very content and the nature of Joel. Who is he? We don't really know that either. Verse 1 says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Nobody really knows where he came from, who he was. Joel doesn't tell us anything really more than this. So much like the date, the person in lineage of Joel is also a mystery. He's the son of Pethuel, which suggests at least the people he was writing to, preaching to, they knew who he was. They knew his father. His name means Yahweh is God. I don't know if you can do anything with that, but it's pretty interesting. Now, there are several themes that we'll try to cover as we go through this short book. And probably the most prevalent is the theme of the day of the Lord. In fact, some people call the book of Joel the book of the day of the Lord. And hopefully I'll spend some time on this because it's very, very important, I think. And it's developed throughout not just Joel, but throughout all scripture. In fact, we will learn that the day of the Lord is both one event and many events. It's a paradox in that sense. But I believe it's the day of the Lord is many events which absolutely point to one major event. But what it paints for us beautifully is a picture that the plans of God are moving forward. So I think the day of the Lord will be important for us to study. We'll see it in a minute when I read. We'll see it twice, I think, in this passage. And this highlights another theme in Joel, and that is the sovereignty of God over all creation and activities. In other words, Joel has a biblical worldview, and he teaches us to have the same thing. Joel, like all the prophets, never sees the activities of nature or anything else as accidents. For Joel, God is in control of all things, be it locusts, armies, nations, calamity. Joel never sees disasters as only a natural occurrence or an accident. 
Joel would not understand the concept of Mother Nature. That would be foreign to him. And probably should be to us as well. In fact, Joel helps us in understanding something that is known as theodicy. Now, that sounds like a big word. It's really not. You see in it, God, Theo. But it's important. I point it out only because I want you to know something about it. The study of theodicy is the study of the vindication of the divine attributes of God. In other words, the study of allowing God to be God, particularly in the area of holiness and justice, allowing for the existence of physical and moral evil. Now, that's a mouthful to say. Basically, theodicy is how do you make sense of the fact that there's evil and wickedness and there's disaster and calamity, and yet God is good and just and holy. So see, that's really important. You, you don't have to know the word theodicy, but you do need to kind of know, what do I believe about disaster? What do I believe about death? What do I believe about life? In fact, um, I'll go ahead and say this. I think all of us as believers, we need to have a theology about all of life. You need to have a theology, which is the study of God, you need to have theology about the existence of moral evil and physical evil and good and justice and all those things. You need to have a theology of the body. What is your theology of body? I mean, that's one of the things we, we try to talk about with our kids if things come up. Well, okay, I mean, we may not use these words, theology of the body, but why would you not wear that? Why would you not do that to your body? Why would it be okay to do that to your body? A theology of the body. We ought to think about that. You ought to have a theology of sex, a theology of marriage, a theology of just life. How does what decisions you make, how does it fit into what you believe about who God is, right? Because all of that matters. God is at work in all these things. I tried to put these passages together this morning to point that out. The psalmist in Psalm 119, the first passage we read, he said very clearly, God, you made the heavens and the earth and, and, and you caused them to do what they do. And then he says, everything is your servants. Everything. Not just the things that are easy to explain, but even the things that are difficult to explain. We really need a theology of life. Joel points this out for us well, and we're going to look through that a little bit today, but as we go through this book, we'll see it a lot. Another theme in Joel is covenant. Now, the word covenant, we've talked a lot about that in these last several months and weeks. The word covenant never appears in the book of Joel. But this very first passage that I'm about to read to you, the plague of locusts should be viewed as judgment based on the breaking of the covenant. Now we have read through this, and as Jonathan has carried us through this thought process of the covenant, there's all those covenant blessings in Deuteronomy 28, but also there are those curses. If you don't do this, then guess what's going to happen? And one of those things was, I'll send locusts and they'll eat up everything you got. And so I think that one of the most important themes in Joel, beyond the day of the Lord, is this idea of covenant and covenant breaking. Joel, in short, is pointing out that God is faithful to his covenant. His people are unfaithful, but God is always faithful. God will judge as he promised. He will judge and he will rain down just judgment and justice upon the elect and the non-elect. But 
just like every other prophet, Joel not only preaches retribution and judgment, he also preaches grace. And there is a coming restoration. There's always, in the preaching of judgment, there's always the preaching of grace. And I've pointed this out before, that God, through judgment, will gather his people unto himself. Never leave them, never forsake them. And I'll highlight this again in a minute. That's what judgment does. Judgment always further ostracizes those who hate God. They will hate him more. But the people of God, it ought to, as Jonah read that passage to us, it ought to give us eyes, ears to hear, and also eyes to see. And it ought to give us repentance when we come back to God. If judgment further causes you to hate God or be mad at God, that's not good. Well, I can keep on with the introduction, but let's look at the passage. I think this is the most important part. Probably come back to a lot of this stuff I just mentioned. Let's try to, well, let's just read, let's read verse two through four, and, and then I'll talk a minute, and we'll go all the way back through the rest of it. So he, he says to his listeners, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locusts left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Now, depending on what version of scripture you're reading, yours may have something in there about canker worms or Different kinds of, it may not all say locusts like mine did, but basically what I've understood is there's about 10 different words in the Hebrew language for locusts, and some of those are all in here. Why Why the King James, for example, used canker worms in different translations, there's a lot of reasons, I guess, you could look into those, but it's basically highlighting, uh, just pointing out either different stages of locusts, Locusts are a fascinating thing. If you never studied that, you have time. It's amazing what you find out about locusts. This one little grasshopper that nobody would be afraid of, that most of us would either step on, shove away, or if you're a kid, you catch it or you fish with it. It's never frightening, but when you put millions of them together, they're devastating. And I've even come to find out there's stages of them. And when they swarm and become what they call locusts, not just Hoppers, they even almost develop into another stage where they're just, they can never, they can never get full. They just eat and eat and eat until they die. They just ravage. And then they lay eggs. And that's kind of the idea here. There might be this stage of locusts and they'll eat stuff. There's another stage coming and it'll eat what's left. And what they get by eating by that one, it'll keep coming. And finally their eggs will hatch and those will come out and eat. Basically just a painting a picture of judgment. And don't think anything's going to escape judgment. You think he could run and hide? Adam thought he could duck behind a tree that God had made and God would never find him. You never can escape the judgment of God. That's basically the point there. Not to try to simplify it or allegorize it completely. But I hope you notice, I sort of alluded to this, the allusion back to Deuteronomy here. Hear this, give ear or listen. This is much the way Moses began his last testimony in Deuteronomy 32, he said the same thing. Hear, O Israel, listen up. 
And then he says, Joel almost quotes things that Moses says. Has such a thing happened in your days? Or even in your father's days? Joel, I believe, intentionally pointing his people back to the days even coming out of Egypt. To hear Moses' words, because they would have been very familiar with this. It would have rang, it would have rang in their ears and in their minds. It would have, it would have caused something to go off. The curse that God had placed on Egypt. This is exactly how God introduced it to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, there's nothing ever been seen like this in your, your day or your father's day or your father's father. I'm about to wreak havoc. Tell Pharaoh this coming plague is nothing like they've ever seen. And then God says to Moses, and you tell your children of it. And let their children tell theirs and theirs to another generation. It's the same words. Tell your children, Moses said, how God speaking to Moses. Tell your children how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians. And it also is reminiscent of Deuteronomy 6. What's known as the Shema, right? The teaching of, of Israel. Teach these things diligently to your children. They rise up and they sit down. And later in Exodus 12, the teaching of the Passover. Guess what Moses said to the Israelites then? You teach this to your children and their children and their children. Keep teaching. So the Israelites were to pass on these great teachings of God. And they knew this because Israel had been doing such. And so now Joel comes along and he says to them, these words so similar and familiar, but he twists and uses it to say, hey Israel, this story, that this, this judgment that God's about to pass on to you, it'll be nothing like you've ever seen, nothing like your fathers have ever seen, or their fathers. You better teach this to your children that they might teach it to theirs and keep teaching it so they won't ever forget this lesson, right? Isn't that what, isn't that what we do as parents? I'm telling you this because I've done it and I've tried it and it don't work. You'll end up in trouble. You'll end up, you'll end up failing. Sometimes, even as parents, we say, "I never try that." But I'm just telling you, you don't want to try it because I've seen what it'll do. Same, same thing here. God's saying through Joel, "Hey, you, you let the Israelites know I'm about to send judgment, and they better, they better never let it be forgotten. They better pass it on down, so it's never forgotten." Now, this idea of locusts here. Is another point of contention in Joel and another point of interpretation, enigma or whatever. You can find all kinds of interpretation. Either this is really talking about grasshoppers or this is really talking about an army that's coming. And so he paints them as an army, much like an army of locusts that would destroy everything. Or some people believe it's allegorized altogether. None of this is Literally an army or locust is just painting a picture of judgment. I don't know. I probably would do a little bit of all of that. And again, there's just as many very good conservative Bible-believing teachers who believe one of those, they do the other. I'm not sure it really matters as long as it's consistently done. But at the end of the day, what does matter is judgment's coming. It's not fun. It's devastating. And you better take heed. It proves, as I mentioned, the judgment of God is inescapable. 
Much like what Amos said, chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness, not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went to a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. That's kind of what Joel is making the point here. One grasshopper might not do it, but the next one will come along. He'll keep on until it's all. In other words, God's judgment will be full. And it will be complete. So keep that in mind and you'll see there's kind of, it'll go back and forth. And Joel uses a lot of literary tools like simile. So he's going to be, he'll say a lot of times like this or as this. And he uses a lot of combinations of words and double words to put emphasis in rhyming words that we can't really see in the English but are in the Hebrew. In fact, I read somewhere that it's very possible that the book of Joel might have been a liturgical tool in the early church because it's so short. They would read it often in worship so people would remember and memorize and be aware that, hey, God is serious about his covenant and about his word and he will judge his people if he has to to bring them to repentance. Pretty interesting thought. Let's read through the rest of this and then I want, I want to try to bring this introduction to a close. Verse 5. Awake you drunkards and weep and well all you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine for it is cut off from your mouth for a nation has come up against my land powerful and beyond number its teeth are lion's teeth and it has the fangs of a lioness you see why people say well the grasshopper is probably just allegory because now there's this other group coming and they're like lions but again it's kind of you see it just keeps going through this it's laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree it has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. In other words, Israel, you better pay attention. Well, like those who love the wine, but even though they've dug out their vineyards and prepared, there's going to be no wine this year. and They're going to be without. Weep and well like a young bride whose husband either died just before he married her or right after marriage. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off in the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up, the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Well, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up for the children of man. You see this, just this continual idea of judgment. Be ashamed, all of you who spent all that time tilling and working the field. No harvest is going to come. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Well, O ministers of the altar, go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all inhabitants of the land. To the house of the Lord your God and cry out to him. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near. And the destruction as destruction from the Almighty comes. This is one of those places where I found out there's a rhyme in the Hebrew. We can't see it. But the word Almighty rhymes with the word destruction. So it's like Joel is saying. And as destruction comes from the destructor, it comes. There again he's pointing out. Hey, destruction doesn't happen. By accident. It's coming from God. Is not the food cut off before your eyes. Joy and gladness from the house of our God. 
The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of the sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of wilderness. And flame has burned all the trees in the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up. And fire, fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. I'll just hold off those 11 verses till next week because it's much the same thing. The chapter breaks are, are not the best because it seems to just continue on. He points out um, fire. I mean, it's like this, this picture of judgment, the farm, the land, the wine. None of it's going to come to pass. It's all been destroyed because of judgment. And then he says it much like Amos pointed out so often. The land will be burnt. As if the judgment of the locusts was not enough, fire, fire would devour what's left. It's this incredible picture of judgment. There will be nothing untouched by God's justice. Graphic visions. Horrific natural calamities. Which are clearly to be seen as judgments from the Almighty. All mixed in. With the calls to repentance. So let me take these last few minutes to tell you and remind you of something we've talked about before. The idea of God and natural disaster. How God uses his judgments to awaken his people. And again, I point this back out. God's judgment is always effective in two ways. It either further alienates the enemies of God or it awakens the people of God and sobers them up for repentance. Always be thinking through that. As you read the scripture, as you look at life, what is happening around me? What is God doing to bring me to repentance? That I might have better faith and more faith and that I might trust him more. If you're one of those who you see disaster around you and all it does is further alienate you from God, Listen to what God is saying. And I want you to hear the gospel. That God ultimately poured out the worst disaster ever known upon his son. For your sin that you might be saved. You have to hear that. You need eyes to see and ears to hear that. Or you will never see any of this other stuff as any kind of thing other than a reason to hate God. So as a Start. There are no accidents. In this realm of disaster, we may view events as natural natural disasters, but for Joel, and I believe from a biblical worldview, things occur because God chooses for them to occur. This locust swarm, if it's literal, it was no accident. If it's an army or if it's nations, whatever it is, it wasn't from their clever planning or the army's great weaponry. It's because Israel had been disobedient. So God's about to judge them. Now I really encourage you to think this through. Because you're not going to be able to turn on your favorite TV preacher and hear him preach on this. Or if they do, they will conclude that 
what was true for Joel can't be true for us because we can't view God as doing these sort of things that would make him cruel and real a real meaning. Besides, how will our friends ever come to believe in a God that would cause a tsunami or cause a tornado or a hurricane or a locust swarm or a famine or an invasion or kill his own son on a cross? So we feel like we have to apologize and make up a God that would be better fitting for society and culture, right? Well, the truth is, again, our friends won't believe such disasters bring them to repentance and a greater understanding of the holiness and righteousness and judgment of God if they don't belong to Him. If they do belong to Him, they will bring them to that understanding. Because again, that's exactly what judgment does. It sobers us, yanks us from the mire and muck around us and brings us to repentance. The unbeliever just further goes away, away from God and draws back to the idea of a God who could actually be a God, a real God. But we as believers, we know that all of life and blessing after the fall is grace and mercy. Anything that God has allowed to happen, when he said today you eat of this, you will surely die, but they didn't die. Everything's grace. Now they did eventually die, but they didn't die until they were covered by the Lord. We know that the Lord hardens whom he wills and has mercy on whom he wills. And this is a great mystery. And though heartbreaking at times, sorrow and mourning turns the people of God to further trust him and his grace for every blessing. So I ask you, what is your view on this? How do you see the world around you? Do you have a real biblical worldview? Our, our idea of biblical worldview has been become so cloudy and muddied because there are so-called church people painting a worldview that's not biblical and calling it biblical. Much along the lines of what Jonathan was praying about earlier. I mean, just look. You can see what is painted as a biblical worldview is not biblical. Nature did fall with Adam. But do you believe because nature fell, there's just disasters happening out of chaos, out of control? God could intervene, but he doesn't. I hope you don't believe that because why doesn't he? Are you among those who believe that, well, Satan's kind of in control of those things. He does bad things. So that's kind of a frightening thought. Satan's in control of nature. Remember what Amos said, chapter 3, verse 6. If a trumpet is blown in a city and the people, are the people not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? This was an awful thing to see in Joel's day, yet he didn't try to let God off the hook. He didn't try to Make it easier, more palatable. Say, look, some bad things are about to happen, but I don't want you to think that God's doing that. God's, God's not in those things. He's just in the nice things, and the good things. The prophets never did that. In fact, Isaiah, I know I've read this to you before, chapter 45, verse 7. God speaking there says, I form light and I create darkness. 
I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I know that's tough to hear, but you got to have a theology of creation and a theology of disaster and a theology of death and a theology of suffering. If you don't, you'll be lost without words. I'm very thankful for the job I'm able to do right now. It gives me a chance every week to further educate myself on my theology of suffering and death because I'm right in the middle of it. And I can't just sit there and say, I don't know how, I don't know why this is happening. I'm sorry, I don't have the answer. God didn't know, God's not anywhere near this. I'll be an awful, empty hopelessness. God has to be sovereign in these things, and Joel points that out. But Joel is in good company. I just read Amos, Isaiah. Back in Exodus, God said to Moses, Who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Again, that's a hard thing. People don't stand up and say that much. But Jesus even comes along in the New Testament, John chapter 9, as he passes by, seeing a man blind from birth. You remember this. And the disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's a, that's a tough thing for our culture and our world and even our church culture to handle. We're so used to apologizing anything, anytime God looks like he's really God and we're trying to make up for him, make him seem human. We don't want a God that seems human, do we? I've seen human, humanity. I don't want my God to be human. Now, Jesus was fully human, but he was fully God. Don't mishear me. Not speaking of heresy, I know Jesus was human, but I'm saying I don't want justice that men bring, I want justice that God brings. Part of the worst, to me, the worst thing about listening to people talk about justice this day in time is that there's such a small view of what justice is. We don't even begin to understand what real justice is because we don't see it. And most of the people that are crying out for justice. They don't understand. You don't want justice. What you really want is mercy. It'd be a better option. I think one of the glorious aspects, more glorious aspects of this book is to remind us of God's willingness to wreak havoc in order to save his people. I just think that's a, that's a biblical truth. God has done and continues to do whatever is necessary to save his people. He won't allow, he loves us too much to let us just go live willy-nilly however we want to. In fact, he, he teaches us, you won't want to live how you want to. You want to live how the Spirit directs you to live because now you're not the same. You used to live how you want to, but now you don't. And when you want to do that again and you decide that the Word of God is not your guide or you don't like it, which most of us get in those places where the word of God cuts, it's living, it's a sword, it cuts and we don't like it. Then God brings judgment in some way and, and repentance so that we turn from our own ways and turn back to him. And I already alluded to this, but the greatest disaster he ever brought to pass was to slay his righteous son on behalf of sinners. 
But you know, people view that the same way they do all these so-called disasters. Either I wouldn't believe in a God like that who would kill a harmless, guiltless man for the sake of others. Why didn't he stop that? Why didn't he step in? We had long ago stepped in. We just aren't able to see that. It was the plan. It had to be that way. God's people were saved by it. What has taken place in your life? What has taken place in your life up to this point that you believe there's no way God could have done that? There's no way God would have been in that. Has God ravaged your land, so to speak, or brought locusts to lay waste to all that you had trust in? If he hasn't, he might. I hope you can proclaim, and I hope we all can proclaim along with Habakkuk this. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off in the fold, and there be no herds in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. That's the point that God's trying to get his people to. That'll take away everything you got, but what I won't do is leave you or forsake you. You'll still have me. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of that. What's your trust in or, or who is your trust in? I think Joel's going to help us with that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's such a beautiful word. And we thank you that you haven't left us without testimony of yourself, of your graciousness, of your mercy, but also of your justice and your judgment and your wrath. All these things work beautifully together and perfectly together. We don't have to apologize for the parts we don't understand. We don't have to apologize when you look like God and you're in control of the things that make us uncomfortable. And we know that we can trust that all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. That even above that, all these things will glorify you. So God, I pray that you would help us to learn from Joel and just learn this idea of a theology of life. What, what do we believe about these things? We've got to figure out how much we want you to be in control because the truth is you are. So we've either got to accept that or we've got to continuously make apologies for you when things come up that we don't like for you to be in charge of. So I pray you give us grace in that. Help us to learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.